I landed on the pinnacle where we had starved together, and a few hours before dawn watched a new star appear over the western horizon, flare to brilliance, and fade as it moved away, becoming just another star, then a dim star, then nothing. I walked to the edge and looked down the sheer rock faced, the dim frozen rippling of dunes half a kilometer below. I sat with my feet dangling over the edge, thinking nothing, until the sun's oblique rays illuminated the dunes in a soft, tempting chiaroscuro of low relief. about to get to part two of the forever war um but first have you filled out our listener survey available at uppermiddlebrow.com well why not you'll be entered to win a bluetooth speaker perfect for listening to your favorite podcasts but more importantly this is your chance to shape the show do you think we should talk about stuff other than books and movies do you sometimes want to cut the ramble and get on with the book discussion well this is your chance to tell us that. And coincidentally, if you do happen to want to cut the ramble, this is one where the ramble goes on for a bit. So if you want to get straight to the Forever War Part 2 recap, go ahead and skip to about eight minutes in or six minutes from right now. Oh, and the survey is linked at uppermiddlebrow.com. Here we go. If somebody would say Pulp Fiction is an old movie, I'd be like, no, it's from the 90s. Right. That's a new movie. Yeah. Old movies are from the 80s or prior to that. Yeah. New movies, anything after 1990 is a new movie uh, because I remember it coming out, exactly. which makes it a new movie. An old movie is a movie that is lost to the mists of time. Yeah, like there's a there's definitely this happens a lot where I'm like, where I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that like that new like. That new Radiohead album, like the Rainbow one, and people are like, mm. "That came out in 2007." Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't care. Moment we had like that recently, uh, at School of Rock, like, yeah, yeah, came out, you know, in two, it is 20 years old. It's 20 years old, yeah. But no, it feels. Yeah. I mean, like, what a great. I mean, we're sort of working our way towards time dilation. Um, when but, when when School of Rock came out. E.T. was as old oh, as School of Rock yes, that is game. now. That game. That game is a terrible yeah. game. <laughs> that, yeah, that, terrible. Like... You know, like I'm, I'm about to teach this class about freelancing for bookkeepers. And I was thinking <laughs> Bookkeeper, through... Bookkeeper, bookkeeping for freelancers. <laughs> <laughs> However, can, However, I, I, could teach, teach the other one can I teach the companion class? <laughs> oh, my God. For bookkeepers. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could. Um, yeah, no, I, I I mean, I do think there's potential to that build some That one feels up my alley. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> you all work in accounting, but I am here to tell you about the world of the arts. Uh, you know, there are a lot of freelance bookkeepers, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and in fact, I have been a freelance bookkeeper at time at time to times. So. Oh, that's interesting. I'm I'm now thinking of freelancing as like, like they would all like, it's a bunch of bookkeepers who are not freelance bookkeepers, but want to be like freelance dancers. Oh, I see what you mean. I see what like... you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because freelancing is often associated with sort of artistic yeah. I, oh, my first association with freelance is, of course, Peter Parker, who was a freelance photographer for the Daily Bugle. Parker! Um, Parker! <laughs> 
Oh, these photos of Spider-Man aren't bad. Can you get us some more by Friday? I'll give you $25 for them. Um, one of uh, one of my favorite DM Aaron here in Portland uh, conceived of an entire campaign of where we were all sent out for our jobs by that character. It was great. It was so much fun. J. Jonah Jameson? J. Yeah. Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson of the comic book? Or that particular actor, what's that guy's name, who uh, plays him in the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire uh, film? Both, but I think more the comic book character. Right. Although uh, that guy does a very good job channeling the comic book character. Sure Although one of yeah. the greatest lines from that film, which holds up very well on the whole, is, I don't trust anybody but my barber. <laughs> that is a great line. My it God. is. It is. Wow. It may have been. It may have been penned by Michael Shaban, who was one of the writers on that film. Oh uh, yeah, uh, that's right. I forgot that. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, oh gosh, yeah. Something about time dilation really made me. Well, you know, I mean, like, there's that old that old thing about like when you're young, like when you were ten, a year is ten percent of your life. <laughs> Yeah, and it, and I think it feels that way. It I think sure it, does. I, I I think it feels that way. I think a year takes a lot longer when you're ten. Yeah, and but but also the thing I was thinking about too is I was trying to come up with a metaphor for this bookkeeping for freelancers class. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a metaphor or a way of relating people the idea of reconciliation of budget, and I was like. Some people in this class are going to remember balancing their checkbook every month, you know, in their check register. And like, I am just old enough that when I was in college, I rented a house. We paid by check. I wrote the amount in my register. And I always had a record of what was in my checking account because for a long time, you only got a monthly statement and yeah. you didn't know what you couldn't. And this was in the era that was changing. So even then, it felt a little bit old fashioned that mm -hmm. I was doing it. And I remember Mike Goddard, who, you know, my friend Mike was always kind of like, yeah, why are you even writing checks? We've got this checkmate card. It's, you know, it's a debit card. Check you should me. just use that. And that felt like he was right. But that felt like I wasn't used to that idea. That felt like wildly irresponsible. Yeah to use a check card actually remember one time like watching him like write a check and like not write it down in his register and i'm like my god you're living wild you're just raw dogging <laughs> your checkbook here it's crazy i'm like one or two years younger than you are and so like i remember seeing my parents balance their checkbooks and i was taught how to do it and for a very brief period of time i ran my mom's tea shop while she was in mm -hmm. Arizona for a year and had to do double entry bookkeeping by hand <laughs> in like a right. ledger and right. and then every month you reconcile totally. your, your ledger to the actual statement that comes in the mail and then often there would be one missing from the ledger because someone had made a mistake or very occasionally there'd be a mistake in the banking institution or the credit card or something like that. Yes. And you'd have to call them and say, you ran a that and yeah, argue and with the bank. And then they send you a monopoly card that says bank error in your favor. In your favor. <laughs> Here's your $22. Here's a check. The monopoly man shows up outside your house with a giant $20 Hello. check. I can't see you. Let's remove my monocle. <laughs> And that's what life was like in the 90s. Yeah, everybody. It was great. Things happened great. slower. But um, like, maybe we should maybe we should recap. Um, <laughs> uh, Listener, our, our you, you may have thought you were here to listen to Forever War Part 2. Instead, you're getting our once every 18 months episode where the ramble 
never ends. There's one of those that went for like 45 minutes <laughs> no. that I cut out of one of the Goon Squad episodes. One day I'm going to bring it back. It, it it involved the Arctic Blast thing went for oh, like, that's it right. went for a long time. And we also developed the plot of Sideways 2. In that <laughs> <laughs> so one day, listeners, we'll put that, we'll have an all ramble clip show. But um, we, we left off the Forever War with Mandela um re-enlisting being promoted and um basically he thought he was going to be a trainer along with potter but they are sort of heartlessly reassigned and their very first campaign in this book happens very quickly i don't even really remember where it happens but they basically very quickly both get wounded and they are taken back to Planet Paradise. Fortunately for them, something like 200 years has gone by, and now we can regrow limbs. So uh, they get their limbs regrown and then probably have the best time they get to have in pretty much the entire book, where they go on this really long furlough in Planet Paradise, where they spend their billion dollars that they have saved, and they explore the planet, and they go backpacking, and they... They, you know, are doing Arctic camping and then they visit what he calls the flesh pots, the cities and take in all sorts of pleasures and eat great food. And then at the end of that, they are promoted again, Mandela to major, Potter to captain, and they are given different assignments. And because of the way relativity works, basically once one of them takes off, on a transport at relativistic speeds, the odds of them ever seeing each other again are very, very low. Um, and so they have one more day and a half together where they, you know, try to try to sort of squeeze in a little bit more time and then they, they say goodbye. And Mandela is very sad and very lonely at this point. Then they, uh, he ships off. Uh, he is sent to Stargate uh, for indoctrination and training in the can. Uh, which is clearly um, filched for the Matrix uh, just about exactly 25 years later, or probably like 23 years later because movie time is relativistic. Um, Mandela knows Kung Fu. Mandela does know Kung Fu. <laughs> Mandela, like... And he uses it. <laughs> exactly. He knows a lot of stuff. There's a really fun section of him kind of describing the training of all the different Yeah, like ways. that Maasai warrior bit. Yeah, and he's like a sniper in the Union Army picking off uh, blue, coat, uh, blue coats um, yeah. somewhere. Unfortunately, he's a Confederate, but uh, oh, uh, shit, Vicksburg. Right. He's a Confederate oh, at Vicksburg. Yeah. As I was saying that, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> If he's picking off yeah. blue coats, um, then uh, yeah, he then he is promoted to he's uh, he's been promoted to major. Um, a lot of this indoctrination and training is about not just how to use different weapons, and that will become clear why he needed to know how to do that later, um, but also a lot of military history. Um, and then also a really interesting bit where we learned that there has been a revolution at some point on Earth that wasn't covered in the military history because the rebellion was headed by UNEF veterans. Um, and ones, not ones that Mandela was deployed with because his deployment was ALIF-1. These are veterans of like ALIF-14, I think, or um, some other ones that he wasn't a part of. But we learned that there was a rebellion. It was essentially put down, um, but they don't they, they don't 
train soldiers the same way that they may have used to train them. Uh, one of the things that the army has apparently discovered or that UNIF has discovered is that even if you make perfect soldiers um, that don't care anything about themselves, they the Torrens kind of can outdo them in that way. And those companies kind of quickly get cut to pieces. Um, Mandela meets his command team and they head you, off. You can't out degaff the Torrens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They'll win any kind of degaff fight. Um, we, they, they set off for um, SADA 138, which is not even in the local galaxy. It's in the Greater Magellanic Cloud, uh, 150,000 light years away. This is a long trip. Um, it still only takes them about, I believe it's eight months to get there, but about 300 years will pass back on Stargate uh, or Earth, um, depending. Uh, there's this wonderful sort of throwaway moment where he says something like, for a hypothetical observer, 300 years would have passed. Uh, he does get a lot of mileage from little words like hypothetical and stuff like that. He does a great job of suggesting what's kind of going on. Uh, by with really efficient wordplay. Um, the reason they're going out this far is that UNIF has discovered a pattern in the way the Torrens move. There's something important about SADA 138. Uh, they're trying to track back to the Torrens homeworld to ostensibly launch a attack on the Torrens homeworld and end this all. Um, they know the Torrens are also headed to SADA 138. The humans get there first, and they're supposed to set up a base, and they know they are probably going to be attacked in that time. Um, there's a really fun expository scene at the beginning of the section where uh, Mandela learns that uh, everyone on Earth is homosexual now. Everyone in his company is homosexual. And, um, and heterosexuality is viewed as... Um, a neurosis uh, and something that's sociopathic uh, but is very curable uh, and people can be sent off to be cured of heterosexuality. Um, do you want to take us through the battle on 138? Yeah, it's, it's a very um, powerfully described battle. So they're on a very icy planet not quite as cold as the coldest place they've been uh, but pretty cold and the first thing that mandela has his strike force do is kind of dig in and build some fortifications they have a spaceship but they also have this thing i forget what it's called pole, some kind of suppression the, field the or something field. the it's stasis a, a, field it's a this, great plot device it's 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 wonderful, wonderful. so inventive and, what the stasis field does is basically slow everything down to about the speed of what, like maybe a baseball being thrown or something like that. Um, and because of that, projectile, traditional projectile weapons, and I think even energy weapons, don't work in the stasis field. And also, if you're in the stasis field, you literally the planet could be like blown up, and your your the shock wave won't hit you it'll it'll maybe it'll build a crater underneath the stasis field um, but you're safe from all sorts of weapons so it is a sort of like the keep of last resort you know if you think about like uh helms deep and a great this is a great this this last battle is a siege it's kind of a great uh sort of uh, zulu uh 
um, you know, Spartans against the Persians or uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep. One of these great stories of a small army being attacked by a larger force. Um, so they have that field um, and the weapons that work inside that field would be sort of like swords and spears and bows and arrows. So they've brought a bunch of those with them and they've trained. And essentially the Torrens attack with two space cruisers. Uh, they only have one. Uh, the space cruiser captain nobly and heroically blows up one of the two Torin vessels. And then um, her ship also has some fighters, and one of the fighters makes a very clever maneuver using the slingshot uh, gravity method and blows up the other one, um, but not before the landers are able to land and put several hundred Torrens on the surface of the planet. And also the UNEF space cruiser is destroyed. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, so she's destroyed. The UNIF space cruiser is destroyed. There are a couple of the fighters still left, and then they have one of the fighters on the ground. Um, the fighters are big fighters. They, they can take like 12 people yeah. or something like that. They're interesting size craft. Um, so, so they have a, a small spaceship the field and their base with a bunch of lasers there's kind of a battle there's first a sort of a drone battle where the drones attack the lasers and the lasers mostly shoot down the drones but then the lasers overheat and then there's a ground battle and they're fighting outside and then the cruiser blows up and one of the things that struck it hits the planet and they have to evacuate the base and mandela is actually performs very well as a major he gives all the right orders he orders everybody to topside but because they don't like him very much partly because of his sexuality but probably for some other reasons too they don't follow many of the soldiers don't follow his orders and they're crushed and destroyed in the base but some of them do um, follow the orders so they survive and there's a little bit of some fighting and then they all retreat to the stasis field and then there's some sword fighting and some arrow fighting and then finally Mandela takes a suggestion from Charlie who's his, his very kind of like wry wisecacking gay best friend uh, executive officer um and they push some bombs out of the stasis field, big-ass bombs that they have, and they basically blow everything up for a mile, and that kills all the Torrens. And uh, they wait about a week for everything to cool down, and then they stick their heads out, and hey, uh, the Torrens are gone. They won. They have a couple of ships. They can get everybody back. There's something like 28 of them left, um, a very small number out of, out of hundreds. Uh, so it's a tiny, tiny survival rate. And then... Um, Mandela goes home, and do you want to tell us what happens then? Yeah, uh, we arrive back home in the 32nd century, I think. I think we this section takes us to, what, 3143, I think is... is it, I don't that. remember the date, but it is it is at least a thousand years in the future. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. so at this point, Mandela is technically, you know, like over a thousand years old, but I think in his time, I think at this point he's probably in his... But it's like 30. 30s. Yeah, yeah. something yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, uh, they get home and very quickly realize, like, something is strange here. Every Like, all the f- women look the same and all the men look the same. Um, and they learn that cloning is now um, the way that kind of Earth and its uh, colonies or outposts are mostly peopled uh, is through cloning. Um, the war has been over for over 200 years. Uh, they have been waiting for 
Mandela's detachment to get back. Um, it is the last detachment. And uh, the reason the war is over is because of the cloning. Um, at some point, they are able to start communicating with the Torrens, who are also clones. And uh, that makes a lot of their behavior kind of fall into place a little bit more. Um, they understand each other better. Yeah, they understand each other better. And the question that is asked of the humans by the Torrens is, why did you start this? And the humans are like, we thought you started this. And it is... It's like the most efficient collapsing of like this thousand year Farrago into like, this is all like, this is all a terrible misunderstanding. Um, and Mandela gets a message um, that Mary Gay Potter is uh, on a relativistic shuttle. So basically every month she heads off on this like out and back relativistic thing. Um, Every time she comes back, about 10 years uh, of, of time have gone by. Um, and that she's basically waiting for him. And Mandela heads off to where she's at. Uh, they are re reunited. They have a, um, they have a child uh, born the, the traditional way. Um, not quickened or cloned or anything like that. Um, and we learn in a postscript that not only is um, the doctor from the SADA 138 mission uh, there to deliver the boy, um, that she has also married his uh, wisecracking exo, Charlie Moore. Uh, and that is the end of the book. Like a, like a classical Shakespearean comedy. Yeah. Everybody gets married. All's well that ends All's well. All's well that ends well. <laughs> I mean, like, which is, like, one of my favorite... Like, in, in Planet Middle Finger. In Planet Middle Finger. I know. Like... Giant middle finger being raised to the expectations of the reader. And, like, <laughs> and, you know, the societies that make war. Right. Like... Right. Hell yes, Joe Haldeman. What a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. Go fuck yourselves. We're going to go be happy. Yeah. <laughs> you can take your war and shove it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm looking at your questions here, and I think this one about the sexual tone, I think we actually should start with that. Okay. Because a lot of the questions I was going to ask you sort of relate, if you're okay with that. Totally. Yeah. I, I, as I was penning this question, I was also like, why is this continuing to bother me? Like, why, like, why is this even something that I am continuing to bring up? Because there, I think the, I think it is a little bothersome. Although I also I have a defense, okay. but I do think I think I think you know I think he goes a bit too far. But go ahead and ask the question. Yeah, I mean, my question here is that we talked about this last time, and you you made a very good argument about that we really shouldn't conflate speaker and author, uh, which is true. That is a very important thing to do when we are doing any kind of reading. Um, I think I countered a little bit with like, yeah, but you know what? This book, this book is a, a this is very clearly an allegory. So kind of everything that's metaphorical is up for interpretation, um, and that should be looked at critically. Um, it is also unfair to hold a book from 1974 to the social mores of 2023. Um, but it's but I, I do think that that's important. Like it's it's important to let the book stand on its merits, of which there are so many. 
and also continue to bring up social things like this because that's the only way that the culture wars will you know continue to i don't know maybe be moved in 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 one direction is to talk about this stuff um on page 145 this is when we are still lieutenant mandela um there is this moment where he is talking to a few of his enlisted um soldiers um mm -hmm. And Collins and Halliday come up to Mandela, and it says uh, they were holding hands unselfconsciously. They are both female. The unselfconsciously is the first in like, mm, like, does should they should they be self-conscious? Why should they be self-conscious? Lieutenant Mandela, her voice her voice broke a little. Can we have just a minute? One minute, I said, too abruptly. We have to leave in five. I'm sorry. Hard to watch these two together now. Neither one had any combat experience, but they knew what everyone did, how slim their chances were of ever being together again. They slumped in a corner and mumbled words and traded mechanical caresses, no passion or even comfort. Colin's eyes shone, but she wasn't weeping. Halliday just looked grim, numb. She was normally by far the prettier of the two, but the sparkle had gone out of her and left a well-formed, dull shell. I'd gotten used to open female homosex in the months since we'd left Earth, even stopped resenting the loss of potential partners. The men together still gave me a chill, though. Why'd that, yeah. Why did that sentence have to be in there? Why did why did all of the tone of voice, the, 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 you know, like, again, I am obviously obsessed with the concept of tone. <clears throat> there is so much in this passage that, you know, really um, is a little like problematic. I'd gotten used to open female homosex, even stopped resenting the loss of potential partners. She was normally by far the prettier of the two. Yeah, I mean. Well, I, I have a I have an answer, mm -hmm. and and I guess I still have a little a few other pieces to lay out. But if you're responding okay. to that, um, oh no no lay out my lay out. my my big one is that we get to the end. There's a happy ending um, of reunite reunite in with uh, Mary Gay, um, and if you're reading carefully, you notice that this is a book that is the idea of a happy ending is a heterosexual couple that is procreative with a boy and is delivered by two formerly homosexual members of the company that apparently have married each other. And that is just a little too pat for me, given all of the wonderful imaginings that he's done here about the like rise of homosexuality in this world and how useful it is and how the coupling is probably um, really positive um, and removes a lot of the problems. There's this great moment where they're talking about birth that uh, people show really poor judgment in picking partners to have children with. <laughs> <laughs> like sort of neatly summing up both like fascism 
and like democracy. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's just, yeah, I just found myself continuing to be like, man, I love this book and I hate this little like thread of it where there's just this continuing quiet tone of voice that homosexuality is something to be avoided or cured. The ending, the latter example you gave also bothered me quite a bit. The first example you gave me did not bother me as much um, because I think there is a narrative purpose in the first example. I also think there is a moment where Joe Haldeman has um, another character refer to Mandela. Mandela says, I'm tolerant of homosex. And the character says, you think you're tolerant. And I think we could imply the same. I think we could apply the same uh, statement to Joe Haldeman as well. And I think the latter example is a little bit of his intolerance coming out and even Okay, he's from the 1950s. Sure, he's intolerant if he's exploring that in an interesting way. That's one thing. I think that that ending bit where uh, Charlie and Diana choose to become heterosexual and that being the happy ending is the moment where he lost control of his prejudice. I think prior to that, he's looking at the prejudice in an interesting way. And, I, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, why does Mandela survive? Um, and I was thinking about that question. And this is going to be kind of a long answer, so okay. buckle up. Yeah. Um, if you're okay with that. Um, but just as you were saying this, I, I, I think this relates. Um, I'm going to do a reading that I think is part of the answer to the question of why Mandela survives. So after... Mary Gay Potter leaves, or when she's about to leave, Mandela goes to the planet Paradise, climbs up to this peak, really reminds me of Bend, um, and uh, this pinnacle that they had climbed together and watches her ship fly away, and then he sits there for a moment. Um, I loved this passage. This, this, This was one of my favorite passages of the book. I just totally adored it. I landed on the pinnacle where we had starved together, and a few hours before dawn watched a new star appear over the western horizon, flare to brilliance, and fade as it moved away, becoming just another star, then a dim star, then nothing. I walked to the edge and looked down the sheer rock face to the dim, frozen rippling of dunes half a kilometer below. I sat with my feet dangling over the edge, thinking nothing, until the sun's oblique rays illuminated the dunes in a soft, tempting chiaroscuro of low relief. Twice, I shifted my weight, as if to jump. When I didn't, it was not for fear of pain or loss. The pain would be only a bright spark, and the loss would be only the armies, and it would be their ultimate victory over me, having ruled my life for so long, to force an end to it. That much I owed to the enemy. So Mandela is telling us that he chooses to live in part because he's pissed off and he's not going to let the army win. And I think in the last battle, Mandela, the character, is a, proves himself to be a really good major 
And there are a lot of prejudices against him. The army has analyzed him and basically said, you're too, you're kind of too much like a teacher. You want to mentor people. You're not good at command. So he's a little bit of an intellectual. And his company hates him for a number of reasons, but partly because he's a pervert in their mind. They (laughs) refer to him as the old queer. And so I think part of the reason the homosexuality, heterosexuality thing continues in the second half of this book is to isolate Mandela Mm. and and to give him something to be extra angry about. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give up. He thinks about giving up here. I think this book... The structure of this book is an odyssey. You know, you were talking about the plot structure. I think it's an odyssey. Why does he win the odyssey? Why does he survive? He loses everything that matters to him at this moment, but he's angry and he chooses to keep fighting Mm -hmm. and he chooses to keep fighting um, on SATA 138 and he chooses to prove to those soldiers under his command that there's this moment where one of them tries to kill him and he says something like the old queer still has some moves or something like that. So he's, he's, he's a little bit amused by their prejudice against him, but he is also, he's using it. He's got a chip on his shoulder and this is a Hemingway like novel where we're not getting a lot of interiority. And so we have to use these little clues. And so I think Mandela is homophobic. I think he's trying not to be, and he can have a friendly relationship with Diana Mm -hmm. and Charlie, but always these little quips are happening in his head. You know, they're, they're holding hands like the, you know, they're comfortable holding hands and like she, she would be the good looking girl, like the heterosexual and the prejudicial toxic male never quite goes away. And, I, I think that that is a kind of psychological realism, mm-hmm. and I think it I think it works until the ending. Yeah. I think in the ending, then Haldeman, who shares Mandela's sort of inner biases, as uses his godlike powers and magics Charlie and Diana into straight people because that's what a happy ending is. Yeah. And I think that's the moment where it goes too far. But I personally, I was annoyed by it before that, the way you were, but to me it felt like it did have a narrative purpose. Totally. It was sort of the the answer to this question of why Mandela keeps fighting when he has every reason to give up. So, so that's my narrative explanation. I love that explanation. And I, I think the reason why the end rankles me so much is because the moments... It it betrays it. Yeah, it betrays it, and I really thought he was headed in a different direction. I thought when Mm. he's getting marginalized and othered by his crew and called the old queer, I was like, oh my God, this this is great. Like, he, not only are we doing, like, you know... Not only, I mean, it, it's classic role reversal, right? right? Yeah. It's like it's like the white man's burden movie, or it's like the way Ken is treated at the beginning of the Barbie movie, <laughs> totally. like the way that the the men in the Barbie movie are treated, like women yeah. are yeah. treated, and they resent it. Right? It's just Ken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I, I had this I'm, moment of being like, oh my gosh, like like I was ready to give up on all of my like my issues with it in the first half cuz I was like whoa has he been like planting this seed this whole time is this also like is this book not only an anti um you know we're not going to say anti-war but anti-militaristic bullshit and also like a an anti like homophobia novel like that would I would be I was like let's give this man the nobel <laughs> I mean, if, 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 yes, if, if the final scene 
uh, Mandela returns to paradise and Mary Gay Potter is long dead and leaves him a nice letter and he goes and cries and then he finds a nice man and settles down and has a clone baby together. <laughs> that would be an amazing ending. <laughs> yeah. And like an amazing ending. It would be great. I mean, I did tear up. When we read that Mary Gay is still alive and waiting oh my God. for him. Amazing. And and I kind of, I mean, this is, I had this question for you too, is like, this is the same question I had at, with Project Hail Mary is like, did we make Mandela suffer enough for him to get his, for, you know, how does an odyssey end? Mm-hmm. You're reunited with the one you love the most. Yeah. Did Haldeman earn that ending for his protagonist? Who's also his alter ego. Right. I mean, you no, know, he's the author Mandela insert, for it, sure. Mandela is almost an anagram of Haldeman. Get rid of the H. And and, yeah. and his wife was Mary Mary Gay Potter. I mean, like, he is inserting himself. Um, we don't like this one aspect of the happy ending, mm-hmm. which is magicking, you know, uh, uh, Diana and Charlie uh, into heterosexual characters. You know, I don't like... What he's saying is that that's what's necessary for a happy ending. Right. And deep down... We can be tolerant of homosexuals, but deep down, we all know that we want to be straight, right? right? That's that's kind have, of that's we the, want to have boys, and we want to have them want to have boys away from clones. Yeah, that's that is the, that is the message of that moment. But if you just if you get rid of that, and Mandela gets to reunite with Mary Gay in the way that he gets to, uh, are you okay with that yes. as an earned happy yes. ending? Yes, one hundred percent. Because like the brilliance of this book and of Joe Haldeman's writing is that in a in a really efficient novel like this is not a big novel we're we're i mean you know my edition is less than 300 pages for sure yeah um i mean it's a hell of a lot more efficient than the odyssey (laughs) like i mean you know if we're if we're talking about odyssey books um it's a hell of a lot more efficient than ulysses um, it's like Hemingway wrote the Odyssey in space. I, <laughs> that's, that's this book. <laughs> There's the episode title. <laughs> it's like Hemingway wrote the Odyssey in space. In space. Perfect. Um, man, this book is a piece of work. Like it mm-hmm. because, and I think a lot of the reason that it he does earn the suffering for his narrator is the reasons that you brought up last time is that the sparseness of most of the writing allows the vividness of the dramatic writing of the scenes of combat to really come to the forefront and and really shows us just how terrible war is, whether it's a war here on Earth or a war 150,000 light years away that is that is totally imagined. Um, and like the question of plot armor is present and also not present because like if plot armor is to be dispensed with, we will have no literature. Like mm. you know the the. Like, plot armor? Can you explain that a little bit more? I'm not sure I've heard that. Uh, so plot armor is the reason that like Luke, Leia, and Han make it all the way to the end. Like, oh right, yeah. And in the same, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess we could do Game of Thrones spoilers. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones sort of breaks that rule in some respects and then, at first, and then hues back then at towards certain, it. Right. Yeah, at a, at a certain once once. 
once Jon Snow returns, you're sort of like, I think these people are going to be all right. Yeah. I think my favorite, I think my friends are going to make it. Uh, that was the big one yeah. that sort of, um, and I don't think there are any major heartbreaks after that, um, apart from the actual ending. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's one that I think anybody who was paying close attention probably should have seen coming, mm -hmm. but apparently a lot of people did not see coming <laughs> in the penultimate episode. Uh, I, I have a, um, I agree with you. I have a quick reading I'd love to yeah. do as also sort of part of my illustration. Um, you know, one thing I want to note about Joe Alderman and, and whether the happy ending is earned is that he definitely one of the things he's definitely doing a kind of emotional realism and he's also again like Hemingway he's not sugarcoating war at all and I was thinking about Project Hail Mary and I almost did the same thing I did last time which was rewrite one scene in the style of Project Hail Mary I might I might just try to wing it uh -huh. so th this is a moment um they're in the base. The Torrens are attacking. Um, they're inside. The lasers are fighting them off. And Mandela has figured out that the drone is going to crash in the planet and cause this huge earthquake, like magnitude 11 earthquake. Yeah, and they problem. have to get topside. Yeah. It's a problem, but nobody really trusts him. So a lot of them don't follow the orders. But here's that moment. Um, when that second drone crashed at near light speed, how much damage had it done to the planet? I stepped over to the computer and punched it up found out how much energy had been released in the collision, then compared it with geological information in the computer's memory. 20 times as much energy as the most powerful earthquake ever recorded on a planet three quarters the size of Earth. On the general frequency, everybody topside right now. I palmed the button that would cycle and open the airlock and tunnel that led from the administration to the surface. What the hell, Will? Earthquake. How long? Move. Hillabo and Charlie were right behind me. The cat was sitting on my desk, licking himself unconcernedly. I had an irrational impulse to put him inside my suit, which was the way he'd been carried from the ship to the base, but knew he wouldn't tolerate more than a few minutes of it. Then I had the more reasonable impulse to simply vaporize him with my laser finger, but by then the door was closed and we were swarming up the ladder, all the way up, and for some time afterward I was haunted by the image of that helpless animal trapped under tons of rubble, dying slowly as the air hissed away. Safer in the ditches, Charlie said. I don't know, I said. Never been in an earthquake. Maybe the walls of ditch would close up and crush it. And it just continues. Andy Weir would have had Mandela put that cat in his spacesuit, yeah. right? <laughs> like, you know, Mandela would have been like, I thought about that cat suffocating. It was going to scratch me. Who cared? I ran over to the spacesuit, opened up the lock, and shoved the cat inside. I could already feel its claws digging in, but I didn't worry about that. I only had three seconds, and, like, we would have done the rest of the battle, like, yeah, with, with the, the torrents, with the cat, like, in Mandela's spacesuit. And then, like, the last thing that would have happened when they, like, killed the last torrents and they're waiting is, like, they all let the cat out and, like, give it some milk or something, like, which is literally what happens in Alien, right? Like, the, yes. the only other survivor of uh, the, what is it, the Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is um, uh, the Nostromo. The Nostromo. The Nebuchadnezzar is the Matrix. The only other uh, yes. survivor of the Nostromo is the cat. Um, and I, I do think there is something there is something about the narrative power of a helpless cat, and particularly cats, because they seem incredibly fragile, but they're also 
they actually are good survivors. So there is a, there's this sort of human admiration for a cat's. Mm-hmm. You could sort of be like, yeah, I bet a cat could survive an alien like stalking and killing everybody. Cats are cats are good at that. They you know I had a cat live out in my backyard for years and there were coyotes. It never died. Uh, but it was just one of those moments where I'm like, okay, this is how. This is how Joe Haldeman makes different choices than some writers. Yeah. There are some writers out here who would have saved that cat, and like you would love it. I would love to read, you know, uh, Andy Weir's version of this. Where right, the cat... in, in Andy Weir's version, there's like there's like a two or three page digression, like during the battle where yeah. he like builds something in his suit, where he's like, oh, I figured out that like the exhaust fins could kind of be repositioned in such a way that I had a little like cat pack on yeah. my back. I wonder if, I mean, you know, Aliens comes out in 1979. It's not too much longer after this book. I wonder if Ridley Scott... I would not, um, I would not be surprised if, if, if Ridley Scott was like, yeah, I'm going to make my version of the movie, and this time I'm going to save the cat. You know, there literally is a, <laughs> a book, screenwriter save book. The cat. Save the cat. <laughs> it's a good book. Right. It's helpful. And it, I mean, it's very affecting. And, and, you know, this was the realistic version, and it does everything that saving the cat would do, which is you get that terrible but also wonderful image of this helpless animal licking itself unconcernedly not knowing what's going to happen and it's going to be destroyed and there's something about little images like that can convey the horror of war in Mm -hmm. ways that you know hearing that a thousand people were vaporized when the you know when the the thing uh blew up i mean uh, andy weir's day job was at a tech company joe haldeman's day job was in was, a jungle. <laughs> he, he was a major defending a base yeah. from, you know, the Viet Cong. Um, yeah, he knows and I, and I th- what he speaks. And I think that's why, like, I think that's why this book has such emotional heft. Um, that, I mean, that passage of him watching Mary Gay Potter's ship kind of wink out mm. into the darkness is, is such a masterstroke of putting in a scene that that probably won't really be possible in space travel you know like the the romantic sense of space travel is you know like is like basically airplanes that like fly around in a vacuum and and what space travel is going to be like is going to be like going to the doctor's office and not seeing anything yeah you know because it's going to be large boxes that move around in space because its shape doesn't matter no but he he gave us like the world war one soldier you know on the train waving his handkerchief while his girlfriend sits on the train platform in dubuque and waves her handkerchief until that train disappears on the horizon and is enveloped by a cloud of prairie dust yeah. yeah, he knows when to do romance. And he like, knows and when he to knows... do lyricism. It, he, he doles yeah. it out sparingly. Yeah, it's great. Like, this I, this is a really... it. This got me thinking about, like, why we make fun of Larry Niven. <laughs> you know, and, and why we aren't... Why we mostly joke about reading Larry Niven and some of those other books... And, and we've started coming around on that one mm-hmm. because, you know, like we tend to approach science fiction with a different set of critical tools, yeah. which we shouldn't be doing. Right. Um, like a Larry, like a Larry Niven book is kind of the or, or Heinlein or like any of those those big names is kind of the epitome of upper middle brow because those books do 
hit a wide audience. You know, they're a little pulpy. They're fairly easy reading. But in terms of the ambition, like all of these writers are are ambitious literary craftspeople. Like they're really talking about big ideas. And Especially so, in this era. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, mean Haldeman went know. to the Iowa Writers Workshop and and I mean, he said, you know, and you, you can read it here, but his biggest influence is Hemingway. And and yeah. and I think Asimov is good, too. He was an earlier generation, but not these the writers you're talking about. Maybe they don't always succeed, but they have a literary awareness, a literary mm-hmm. consciousness. They're trying to create works of art. They're trying to create beautiful prose. Do they always get it right? No. Um, but they're trying that, to do that as much as anybody writing about, you know, like a graduate English professor having an affair, you know, or yeah. so, like the like it, as much as John Irving is trying to write in a literary way, Larry Niven mm-hmm. and Joe Haldeman are trying to write in a literary way. And, you know, you can compare craft. Uh, but, yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Yeah. Um I, I, I also, quick I'll just quick, quick note. I picked up, uh, I was visiting our friend Adam uh, a few months ago and on his shelf was Ringworld and I picked it up and read the first chapter and it was great. It, I mean, it yeah. read, I was like, wow, this is like 1972. It read really well. I had read it at age 18 or something, but now with a more, I would say, literary consciousness, it was good, sparse, fascinating writing. It starts with a man turning 200 and using a, mal- a matter teleporter to visit like 20 different major american cities skipping out from his birthday party where there are full, like on a rooftop <laughs> full of famous people because he's kind of bored by it it's a good scene it's a good moment it's a good start i, I had a question for you about that reading uh, that you that you uh, about him watching mary yeah. Gay potter's ship disappear um at the end he says that much that that much i owed the enemy who do you think the enemy is? The army. Paragraph? It's the UNF. The he's not talking about the the Torrens. The 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 the. He's talking. At least to me, that was very clear. The first time I read it, I wasn't sure. I was a little bit, but then I went back and read it and read it. And I mean, you know, we can go back and look at it. But I think he just. I sat with my feet dangling. When I didn't, it was not for fear of pain or, or loss. The pain would only be a bright spark, and the loss would be only the armies. And it would be their ultimate victory over me, having ruled my life for so long, to force an end to it. That much I owed the enemy. I mean, I see maybe it's a little bit ambiguous, but through sheer pronoun reference, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's enough. I think it's the army. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's I think it's some intended ambiguity here. Mm. Which, oh, poetic ambiguity for sure. Yeah, and and I really liked that. Like, I don't want an answer really. I'm interested to hear like what your answer is. And I think that like a lot of good books, like that, there's the well. What is your answer here? And and any answer is kind of fine. And. Um, it, it was just such a quizzical moment for me where I was like, that much I owed the enemy. Like, does he owe something to the Torrens? Does he think about the army as the enemy? Like, it was just a really interesting moment for me. I think uh, I was reading an essay by Joe Haldeman, and he described when he would deploy to Vietnam, I want to say it was 69 or 68 or something like that. He said that nine out of 10 of his fellow soldiers 
were suspicious of the reasons given for the war. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Maybe that's a little bit high, but I think Haldeman, but also you never get the sense that William Mandela is buying what UNEF is selling about mm. the Torrens being evil. He'll fight them because that's his job and because that's what he needs to do to stay alive and to save the other people in his unit. But you, and the only time he feels that way is in the first half of the book when they psychologically hypnotize him to feel that way. And even then, while he's describing it, he's aware that he only feels that way because he's been hypnotized. And, you know, he doesn't ponder it that much. There are no internal sections in this book where Mandela's sitting around thinking, like, what are the Torrens thinking right now? What's going on in their strange waspy body and those weird-shaped <laughs> heads of theirs? That doesn't happen. But I also, you know, I was talking about my theory that Mandela survives because he's angry and he has a chip on his shoulder and he has something to prove. And I think he's angry at his, you know, his his troops for their prejudice against him and for not recognizing his wisdom. He's also yeah. angry at the army and their view of him is that he's just a little bit over intellectual. And he's like, I'll show you over intellectual. You know, <laughs> I will like think our way out of this problem. And I think he very much is the kind of soldier who's just he sees the jingoistic rhetoric around the war as bullshit. And so. Yeah. I don't see him I don't see him thinking of the Torrens as the enemy. Yeah. Okay. Um this is uh it's uh it's by a poet named Tony Hoagland whom I adore who sadly died a few years ago. Um and uh has a wonderful book called What Narcissism Means to Me. Uh <laughs> I saw I saw him great. give a craft talk one time. It was it was oh, pretty fascinating. He's excellent. He's yeah, such a writer. Um, and and the reason I picked this as I was like, oh, I think this this fits. Um, it's called America, and I think it is a, a good piece of critique. The same way that the Forever War is a good piece of critique. And there's just something about it that feels like it's in the same kind of I don't know realm as as the Forever War and Joe Haldeman. Um, but uh, yeah, here we go. It's called uh, America by Tony Hoagland. Then one of the students with blue hair and a tongue stud says that America is for him a maximum security prison whose walls are made of radio shacks and Burger Kings and MTV episodes where you can't tell the show from the commercials. And as I consider how to express how full of shit I think he is, he says that even when he's driving to the mall in his Azuzu Trooper with a gang of his friends, letting rap music pour over them like a boiling jacuzzi full of ball-peen hammers, even then he feels buried alive, captured and suffocated in the folds of the thick satin quilt of America. Mm. And I wonder if this is a legitimate category of pain, or whether he is just spin-doctoring a better grade. And then... I remember that when I stabbed my father in the dream last night, it was not blood but money that gushed out of him, bright green hundred-dollar bills spilling from his wounds, and this is the weird part. He gasped, Thank God! Those Ben Franklins were clogging up my heart, and so I perish happily, freed from that which kept me from my liberty. 
which was when I knew it was a dream, since my dad would never speak in rhymed couplets. (laughs) And I look at the student with his acne and cell phone and phony ghetto clothes, and I think, I am asleep in America too, and I don't know how to wake myself either. And I remember what Mark said near the end of his life. I was listening to the cries of the past when I should have been listening to the cries of the future. Hmm. But how could he have imagined a hundred channels of 24-hour cable or what kind of nightmare it might be when each day you watch rivers of bright merchandise run past you and you are floating in your pleasure boat upon this river even while others are drowning underneath you and you see their faces twisting in the surface of the waters and yet it seems to be your own hand which turns the volume higher. Hmm. Hmm. Anything else you want, anything you want to say about that? I just think that that part towards the end about listening to the cries of the past when he should have been listening to the cries of the future, I really think lands in this particular context of this book about like how hard it is to imagine the travails of what's going to come. But that's not really the point. The point is like the present pain of whatever war or conflict or sociopolitical thing that's going on, that it is, and that we are complicit in all of this Mm -hmm. in the same way that Mandela is complicit because he chooses not to kill himself. He stays in the war. He reenlists. I just, he reenlists. And, and I just think that that book, and, and there's just something about, I've been, I was just, I was reading this book, and for some reason, this poem just kept, like, nibbling at my attention. And I, I was like, I just want to bring that, because I really do think it is part of the same realm. Um, and it's, you know, it, and it's, it's so funny, and so self-knowing, and, and very, like, self-critical. And I think that that's my experience of the whole of of the forever war um with like and the only problem with it is is what we've already talked about about the epilogue is this strange heterosexual nirvana unfortunately i have a kind of negative association with tony hoagland because of this um uh back and forth he got into with the poet claudia rankin i don't know if you if you know that i know her um you i'll send you it's it's he wrote this poem that is an interesting poem where i think he was trying to explore something about american racism she had some questions about it as a black colleague he responded Mm -hmm. to those questions in a very defensive way that was painful to read and she ended up publishing their kind of back and forth exchange. Um, and, um, (laughs) so unfortunately, I don't know. I, I, but I, you know, before that happened, I went to a craft talk with Tony Hoagland and he actually, it was very, very useful. Um, I like, I mean, you know, the imagery of that poem is, I, I, I can never really react to a poem the first time hearing it. Um, yeah, yeah. The imagery that sticks uh, to me is the dream and the father uh, bleeding uh, Ben Franklin's. And then, of course, the the humor of uh, 
that's when I knew it was a dream. Um, and I, I forget exactly what, but it was, you know, there was, there was, there were plenty of things that ought to have revealed to the speaker that it was a dream <laughs> prior to that. Uh, you know, yeah, there was a sort exactly. of humorous understatement there. Um, yeah. Well, sh shall we go into uh, trivia? Let's go to trivia. Yeah. So how many times was the forever war rejected before uh, it was taken for publication? Was it A, four times, B, 18 times, or C, 37 times? Jeez. Okay. I think that four times would be unremarkable um, and, and not worthy of a trivial question. So I think it's going to either be B or C. Zero, you know, one zero times would be remarkable if it, you know, if it was his first query. Um, <laughs> but four is just a nice, like, that's a sort of like, yeah, that's pretty good. Four times, you know, that's, that's pretty good batting average. Mm -hmm. um, 37 is a lot. Are there even 37 publisher publishing houses out there in, you know, 1972 or whenever? I, so I think just for that reason, I got to go with B, 18. You are correct. Um, this was in an interview, uh, and he was talking about the worst advice that he'd gotten. Mm. Um, so uh, Leonard's, Leonard Michaels uh, told him that he should quit science fiction. Um, and uh, but that that was he was like, ah, no, not that one. Uh, the, the cumulative worst advice is the 18 publishers who turned down the forever war saying no one wanted to read a science fiction novel about Vietnam. <laughs> Uh, who was the publisher of uh, the Forever War? Do you recall? Hmm, I don't know. Uh, apparently, it was St. Martin's Press. Was the original? Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, a classic. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. You know, Good it's interesting. Him. I was listening. There's this podcast that offers advice to writers, and they have a couple of agents responding to queries, and the agents are very, very um, confident in their responses. And there was one today where the writer was like you wrote this scene in a way that was very very vivid um because usually you include a sample chapter too um yeah. and um but you know you're not a screenwriter you're you're a novelist and mm -hmm. you you know we need more interiority i want to know what your character's thinking and feeling and i was like i wonder what this agent would think if she got queried by joe haldeman or ernest hemingway i you know i uh -huh. dare say <laughs> um, which is to say that you know sometimes there is conventional wisdom that is accurate and true 95 percent of the time but uh yeah. agents and presses aren't always good at recognizing when they're in the five percent uh Okay, your trivia. Okay, yeah. Um, so Joe your streak Hall continues, by the way. I think I didn't I get one wrong last time, but uh, I thought you got it last time. Well, uh, I I got one wrong recently, but I I've been doing pretty well lately. Um, Joe Haldeman won a Pegasus Award in two thousand five for writing a Filk music song. Uh, Filk. I had never heard of until I read Joe Haldeman's Wikipedia 
is uh, a, originally it was a misprint of folk music, but it's essentially folk ballads that are written in the context of sci-fi conventions and fandom. So, uh, for example, <laughs> one of them, a famous one, is called The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, was like one of the earlier ones. Um, and apparently many sci-fi writers also uh, partake in writing filk, um, and many of them are quite baldy, body. Um, so, was Joe Haldeman's award-winning filk song A, Band from Argo, B, the Ballad of Stan Long, C, Mordred's Lullaby, or D, following my rule, Larry Niven doesn't live in Catalina anymore. For some reason, I'm really feeling C. I'm going with my gut. Mordred's Lullaby. It is B, The Ballad of Stan damn Long. It. <laughs> God damn it. I you know what? I I if I had given you the subtitle, I bet you would have got it. The subtitle is A Sexist Epic. Uh, <laughs> it is a very, you know, Haldeman is also a, a poet, and you can tell that from, from you know, some of his, his lyrical writing. The Ballad of Stan Long is about a, a two space uh, soldiers, space marines, quite mm -hmm. like these characters, um, one of whom, Stan Long, loves the ladies in a most peculiar way, we learn in the first stanza, and then about 30 stanzas later, you learn to what that refers. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but, uh, Chris Bag, um, will you read the Forever War again? Fuck yeah. You know, sort of the way that you talk, you, you sort of reread books on a, on, like, I, I, what I really admire is that you kind of have a group of books that you kind of have on your shelf as like, that's ah, like my beach read or like my surfing trip read or like my, my hiking. I, I could see this book like really falling into like a, a deeply loved, like every five or six years read. Yeah. Like I really dug this book, and I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna read it again for like I could read it for for craft and ide ideation and stuff like that, and I probably will. I'm gonna read this because I like it. I um I agree. Um I I would also say I like it. Um but I also and you know what I have from the Chicago Public Library a really good graphic novel that was made from this book too cool. that's worth a read and it actually oh. it solves i would say some minor narrative problems um but on the whole i like it a lot and i still think there's a lot for me to learn from it yeah um so coming up next uh everybody this is the end of season one this yeah. particular episode yeah. is the end of the books that we started putting together uh, about a year and a quarter ago. Yeah. Um, and um, and this this episode may come out before we sort of hit a year elapsed, which would be, I think, it was Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving weekend uh, a, a yeah. year ago. So this will be this will come out yeah, about so we, eleven months after we started. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. It'll be or maybe I, even eleven is, and a half, almost a year, but not quite a year. Just shy almost of a year. year. Yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. We are launching into season two, but the first group of works that we are going to be considering, not books in this case, is a group of films, uh, the section that we're calling uh, Foodie Films, which is one of Jesse's pitches. 
Um, I really should have the Babette's list feast. up right Babette's here. Feast. I was gonna, I was gonna read the whole <laughs> list of uh, of of stuff. Okay, everybody. That was a fanfare. The first group of works, in this case films, not books, we are going to be watching Babette's Feast, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, Tampopo, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Mostly Martha, Big Night, kind of thing. Jesse and I are going to try to figure out how to do some sort of live screening of the movie Sideways. Um, so that's a long view of what's coming up next, but if you want a short view, the next thing that you're going to hear about other than an amazing kickoff uh, with Monica Eng of the Chewing podcast is our episode on Babette's Feast, a film from 1987 directed by Gabriel Upper Axe. Middlebrow is a small point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes are the commissioned officers. Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at Upper... I should have said Jesse Dukes and Chris Bagg are the old queers. Music... <laughs> Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at UpperMiddleBrow.com. You can still win a storied Bluetooth speaker by going to our website and filling out our listener survey. It's on... A, it's at... Uh, it's linked at uppermiddlebrow.com. We could really use some information. We've got some questions about how you found our show, whether you think we should be longer, shorter, different ideas for segments. Also, just uh, an opportunity for you to tell us anything you want about our show. So we could really use those listener surveys. We want to make the show better. So please go to the website and fill one out. And if you do, you'll be entered to win one of our storied Bluetooth speakers. Perfect for listening to Upper Middle Brow or another one of your favorite podcasts. And we really need you to do this because uh, Jesse and I are kind of beginning to accumulate more storied Bluetooth speakers. I don't know what I, the universe I is trying to say to us. Recently in my, I know. I'm yeah. I'm up to two or three myself. Yeah. Somewhere um, I have a so, stack of storied Bluetooth speakers in this house. That... <laughs> They're going to get less storied, though. I don't know if that's possible. Well, they might go from storied to dysfunctional, which is not what you want. Yeah, uh, Right, that's right now, true. they're merely gently used. Yeah. Um, as a reminder, everybody, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and we would be ecstatic to help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com, which looks great, by the way. Everybody, you should go and check out Jesse's website. It Thanks. looks phenomenal.